0: David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Welcome to the end of the 17th century. Uh, in, the, in the first talk, we spoke about uh, We did an overview, we talked about lots of different things, we looked at the concept of community as really being the way to access our understanding of Jewish history in the 17th century. Communities are still existing in some respect, like atomized entities. There is a global consciousness of sorts, but nowhere near what we would talk about today in terms of a Jewish global consciousness. Communities often didn't know what each other were doing, but there was a network, and Jews traveled pretty much more than anybody else was traveling. And so there was, there was a feed across, but uh, communities for the most part were, are, the, are the most convenient way to access. And we looked at a lot of different things. In the second talk, we dove into the subject of Shabtaut. We drove into Shabta Because if you don't understand or get your head around knowledge of what happened with the Sabbatean events, then you're nowhere near Jewish history of the 17th century. And as a prelude to that, of course, we looked at the Kamilitsky massacres. We looked at Shabtai Tzvi. We looked at that whole period of rise and disillusionment. Don't forget that what I just said about community is one of the things that started to change about global consciousness in the Jewish world in the 17th century was contributed to by the Sabbatean events which forced communities to interact a lot with each other. Then we looked last week, we looked at some extraordinary women that were making parallel contributions uh, in Jewish history and reacting to the events around them and some of them uh, were very fortunate to have windows on their lives uh, in ways that really we don't have with men men stomping around the big stage of history, but these women are just getting on with the business of being. And tonight, as I said, I'm going to dive in to something uh, to complement, hopefully cover a couple of issues that need to be talked about in relation to the 17th century, a couple of issues, and um, uh, some of you no doubt are thinking, well, when is he going to get around to talking about those things, and we're going to do that tonight. So, it all starts on a dark and stormy night (laughs) like this one, except a little bit more uncomfortable because it's around 1639, 1640, and a man called Antonio de Montezinas, who's heard of Montezinas? very important name in Jewish history, not famous. Antonio de Montezinas is a twavla and an explorer. And he is, at the moment, in around 1639, 1640, he's pretty much playing the part of a kind of Spanish conquistador. So this dark and stormy night is happening with Antonio de Montezinas as he is crossing, he's in a country, in a place in South America that we now call Ecuador and he is crossing the Andes with a group of Indian slaves that he has to schlep his stuff. He's actually Portuguese. Why is a Portuguese person being allowed by the Spanish to stomp all over South America? Why are these guys able to take slaves and go exploring and looking for what's there and there? Yeah, Hallowsville. Brilliant. At that stage, if you recall, Portugal was owned by Spain. So the Spanish didn't worry if some Portuguese want to go and conquer places in the name of Spanish territory. And Montezinos was one of those people that was into discovering what's on the other side of this and what's behind that, you know, as people do when they're exploring a new continent. I mean, they've had the continent now for 150 years, but South America is a big place. Not everybody knows what's in there. So he's crossing the Andes with this group of Indian slaves. These Indians, he's got with him, they're not, they're not Aztecs, they're not Incas, they're indigenous Indians to South America. Yeah and they too got conquered by the Spanish Portuguese and they were put into you know basically made to schlep the stuff around for the Spanish as they conquered their territory and he's crossing the Andes on a dark and stormy night now Antonio de Montezinas has a secret he's total crypto Jewsville his real name is Aaron Alevi. (laughs) And he is Antonio de Montezinas, and he is exploring as a Spanish conquistador. And as they're crossing the Andes on this dark and stormy night, these Indian slaves start complaining about their lot. Oh, woe is us. Look at us. We're slaves. We've got to schlep this guy's stuff around, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they get to a point in the night where they realize we're not going any further and they set up a camp. And Montezinos goes to the head of the Indian group there, the guy who called himself Francisco, and he says to him, You know, even though you were complaining about me, I'm going to share these biscuits with you. And the guy said, Listen, you're horrible. Your people are horrible. You conquistadors, you Spanish, you're horrible. But everything you're doing to us, we deserve. We're just being punished for the sins of our own forefathers. And in fact, many, many generations ago, we came here to this land. And we also conquered it. And the people who were living before us, we treated them worse than you're actually treating us. So I'm not really interested in being friendly with you, but you should know that uh, we're just complaining and that's what it is. So, they have a little more and then this Indian says to him, I mean I'm paraphrasing the very detailed the very very detailed story that was related by Montezinas in a famous document called the Relacion which we'll talk about in a moment and other historians, so he says but he said, "It's not always going to be like this. One day, our people—we are not who you think we are." He said to Montezinos, and Montezinos is sitting there going, oh, "You reckon you don't think who you are? Really. <laughs> said, we're not who you think we are. And one day, our Redeemer's going to come, and we're going to rise up." And the world will change. And the Spanish will be conquered. And that's a pretty startling thought from an Indian slave in the Andes in a dark and stormy night in Ecuador in 1640. Sometime later, back in uh, Lima or whatever, uh, uh, Montezinos is arrested. He's arrested by the Inquisition on suspicion of being a crypto Jew. And he's held in prison for a year and a half. Now, the bottom line is he totally was a crypto Jew, but they thought he was someone else. And the interesting thing is he was that other person they thought he was, but they had no proof and they couldn't be convinced. He goes, I'm not that Antonio de Montezinas. I'm this Antonio de Montezinas. We're not that one. So they let him go because they had no proof to connect it. So the suspicions were correct. And eventually he got up. But while he was in prison for this year and a half, Antonio de Montezinas was thinking constantly about that conversation he had with his Indian slaves. And he came to a deep and abiding suspicion that these people themselves might be Jews. So when he got out of prison... He went in search of them, and he found them. He found this Francisco fellow. And he said to him, take me to your people. I want to meet them. And he said, you can't just go to my people. First of all, they're deep in the middle of the rainforest, in the Amazonian rainforest. And secondly, they don't just meet people. Why should they meet with you? And he said, because I believe we have something in common I'm not really Antonio de Montezinas I come from a very ancient people our God is the God of Israel our ancestors were Abraham, Isaac and Jacob I don't really believe in all this Christian nonsense we worship the one true God and they said well that's kind of interesting we're not going to say any more." but we'll take you to meet our people. So they trek for weeks and weeks deep into the rainforest. This is in 1640. Still no flush toilets inside. And they, get, they cross a mountain, they cross a river, they cross a this, they cross a jungle. Cross, and eventually, they get to a place where suddenly these people come out of the jungle. And, he, and Francisco, who's <laughs> taking him all the way, said, this is my people. I'll leave you with them. And they'll do with you what they decide. So they took, so he says, I'm Aaron Alevi, I worship the one true God of Israel, and based on these conversations, I suspect that you are the same. And these natives in the middle of the Amazonian rainforest turn around to him and recite the Shema. And of course, so he said, and then they said to him, we've been waiting for a sign, and you are the sign. We are the lost tribes of Israel. Well, we are one of them. Now, we saw this before. Where did we see this before? Who was at the 16th century? Davido Roveni. And amazingly, the Davido Ruveni story and a hundred and forty years later, that's that's Davida of any turning up by himself in Venice. This is a tribe of people living in the Amazon, a century nearly a century and a half later, and they both got something similar. They both claim to be the tribe of Reuben. And they said, You need to go back to the Jewish world, and you need to tell them that the redemption is at hand. Because now, and we're going to give you messages to pass on so he stays with them for weeks and he sits with them and he observes them and they're praying three times a day and they're saying the Shema and they're keeping Shabbat they're doing all of these things then he leaves the Amazon and he goes all the way back to Europe and where does he go in Europe to relay what he has seen And this really is where we need to pick up, because this is the focus of what we're talking about tonight. We've talked about quite a number of communities, but there is one community that we need to look at in quite some detail to understand this. And that community is Amsterdam. Montezinas, or Aaron Alevi, goes to Amsterdam, and he gathers the leaders of the Amsterdam Jewish community which was governed by a group of rabbis and leaders called the Mahmud and he gathers the Mahmud together now Amsterdam just to look at Amsterdam as a Jewish community in the 17th century people think when did Jews start arriving in Amsterdam and we did talk about this briefly in the first talk but there isn't really a Jewish community of Amsterdam to speak of until the very end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th. Remember that it's only towards the end of the 16th century that Holland gains its independence from Spain. That means it's no longer under the grip of the Inquisition and because Holland is now going to adopt a kind of a particularly unique brand of Protestantism, which devolved into what we now call the Dutch Reformed Church, but in fact is something like Calvinism on crack. And Calvinism is a whole unique brand of Protestant thinking based on the ideas of John Calvin and so on from the 16th century. Calvin, together with Luther and others, were at the forefront. Of the new Protestant wave of Christianity that overtook Europe and caused all these wars but Holland is now Protestant and they started allowing Jews back into Holland at the end of the 16th beginning of the 17th so the first Jews are only really arriving at the beginning of the 17th and the first rabbi of the chief rabbi of Amsterdam was Rabbi Uri uh, Moses Uri Halevi who turns up in about 1602, and he's succeeded by a number of Chachamim. These are Portuguese. Well, the community was firstly Portuguese Jews. When I say Portuguese Jews, means that they had, they were of Portuguese descent. The Portuguese expulsion and Inquisition had happened a hundred years before. But as you know, many many Jews had stayed uh, Jewish either within the realm of the Inquisition, or they had been basically moving around where they could. So different Portuguese Jews from different places are able now to get to Amsterdam and set up a community, and then succeeded by other rabbis like Rabbi Samuel Levi Motera. So Motera is a very interesting rabbi, and I'm mentioning him because he sets up an institution in Amsterdam that's going to have quite an influence. It was a yeshiva. He sets up the first religious rabbinic training academy in Amsterdam, also maybe in the 1620s. By now, the Jews have already started. A trickle has become a little bit of a stream, and we're setting up different uh, institutions in Amsterdam. The Portuguese synagogue is up and running, and he sets up an institution called Keter Torah. Keter Torah was going to become a very influential place of learning very influential. Uh, And Motera also was interesting because he was engaging in anti-Christian polemic. We know that the Dutch community, the community of Amsterdam, already by the 1620s, 1630s was a very strong and observant and very conservative community that was constantly protecting its integrity particularly in relation to the society in which he found itself. It may have been let in by the Dutch, but just because they were Protestants doesn't mean they were chilled. They were still very, very on guard against heresy. How do we know that? Who did we look at in lecture number one? Who? Very good. Someone was here. Oriel da Costa, right? that unfortunate young man that ended up committing suicide because of the pressure of the community because he'd written some pamphlets about the authorship of the Torah. But nevertheless, Mortira himself had no problem engaging in anti-Christian polemics, and his anti-Christian polemics, which were published in his lifetime, were all anti-Catholic. So it wasn't a problem to publish them in Protestant Holland, you follow? He also, however, wrote some extremely biting anti-Calvinist pamphlets but they were not published in his lifetime and only later. So it's a community that is on its best behavior but it is trying to set up these very very well-organized and religious institutions and bearing in mind that the period we are talking about in history generally, even outside Jewish history, is known as the Dutch Golden Age. Because that is precisely the period, the first half of the 17th century, as the Jewish community is establishing itself, as they allow Jews in, as it's getting, the community is getting organized, Holland itself is going through its greatest ever period in Dutch history. It is the center of the world economically. It's pretty darn strong militarily. It's inventing capitalism as we know it. Not only in terms of the stock market, but also the fact that capitalists were funding all the explorations that they were making around the globe. Other countries were still depending on royal decree to say, oh, I think we'll send a ship over there to see what there is. The Dutch had a totally different way of doing it. We're going to get subscriptions for stock, people are going to invest. A far more effective way of raising money and when we go to these places we're going to bring back goods and we're going to sell them in the European markets and we're going to make a lot of money. Spice and uh, silver. And that's exactly what Holland was doing. And it was far and above the economic and perhaps even military superpower of the first half of the 17th century. At that convening of the leading rabbis at which Monteira would have been present. In 1644, when Montezinas presented his evidence and his story about how he found the 10 lost tribes in South America, sitting there listening not necessarily on the dais as one of the leaders, but important enough that he was in the room, is a figure that is one of, I would say, the two most important people of Jewish history and most influential people of Jewish history of the 17th century. We've talked about a lot of people. A lot of people. But if... You absolutely had to say two people from the 17th century in Jewish history that you cannot not have heard about if you know anything about Jewish history of the 17th century. One would be Shabtai Tzvi and the other would be this individual who is first enters the stage of history as he's sitting in this room listening to Montezinas and his name and this is and, and, I, and I highlight that for a reason because when we do a course like this and we hear a lot of different names sometimes we don't have a mind map of who is really 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 big and who is important but not at that level you follow what I'm saying so when you take away from this entire course you would take away Shabtai Tzvi and you would take away this person Manasseh Ben Israel now who's heard of Manasseh ben Israel? this is not my interpretation ladies and gentlemen you have to trust me here Manasseh ben Israel is ginormous in the context of 17th century Jewish history Manasseh ben Israel was not born in Amsterdam he was born in Portugal or rather in Portuguese territory because he was born on the island of Madeira which had a Jewish community and Manasseh ben Israel was brought to Holland as so many other Jews who came from outlying Portuguese areas and came to came to live in Amsterdam when he was a boy so his parents and his family rocked up in about 1610 when he was about six years old yep so he grew up effectively in Amsterdam during its golden age and obviously because if not we probably wouldn't be hearing about him but obviously he's pretty intelligent and he's bright and he gets a very, very good education. He studies at the Kete Torah school, he gets ordained as a rabbi, but he also gets a very good secular education uh, and has a great secular interest, not but in science, but also in wider theological matters. He's very interested in the cross fertilization that he sees around him, Holland was becoming one of the most cosmopolitan places in the world. He wasn't just seeing Jews, he was seeing Christians of different flavors, he was seeing even some Muslims. Holland was seeing just about everybody type passing through and he took a great interest in cross theologies and became friends with a number of different famous theologians of both Holland and elsewhere during the time when Protestantism was really starting to take hold in Europe. The first important thing Manasseh bin Israel does, and this is no small thing, this is not even what he's famous for, this is just one of the things he does, is he establishes the first printing press in Amsterdam, Hebrew print, not the first print, the first Hebrew printing press. Now during the course of the 17th century, Amsterdam Became such a famous place for printing Hebrew books that even books that were not printed in Amsterdam have Amsterdam written on their frontispiece because it made the book, gave the book more credibility to look like it was published. That's why in the world of scholarship we talk about books, we talk about Amsterdam and pseudo-Amsterdam in the world of, of of Jewish texts. We know fortunately which ones were in Amsterdam and which ones weren't. But Amsterdam had a quality of printing that was actually very technologically advanced. So Manasseh bin Israel is involved. His printing press is not such a brilliant commercial venture. Basically because he did something that, you know, printing, those of you who are obsessed with the written word will know, that printing is a bit like drugs. Yep. And you've seen Scarface, right, the movie? Yep with Pacino yeah famous movie so what's his basic mistake yeah what's his basic mistake yeah yeah but what's what about he's selling cocaine but what's his what's his mistake he's using it he's using it if you deal in drugs don't use them right get rich of them don't use them so if you've got a printing press right print other people's books not just your own In any event, one of the very, very important books that he produces is a book that he's written, which we know as The Conciliator. And I mention this not as an obscure fact, but because The Conciliator is a fascinating text because it's trying, and this will become more important as I get into this talk, it's trying to uh, resolve many of the contradictions that we find in the Bible. Now, I don't know... If any of you have ever read the Bible, read the Tanakh, there are apparent contradictions going throughout the Bible. This is not a problem for the sages of Israel because that's what we have commentaries for. And many of the apparent contradictions are not contradictions at all. But there are things that need to be resolved and need to be explained. And Manasseh ben Israel's unique contribution in the conciliator was to draw an incredibly wide range of sources including some Christian sources, to try and reconcile all of the different passages. This is on the assumption that the Bible is a single, homogenous document of the Word of God. And therefore, the underlying assumption is that everything can be resolved because it must be resolved. That's a typical project, theologically, in Amsterdam in the 17th century. But no one had done it from a Jewish perspective, and that's the conciliate. So already he's established himself. At the same time, in the Golden Dutch Age, Manasseh ben Israel is becoming a dude about town. He's known as a rabbi, but he's also known as a scholar. He's known as someone that if you're a proper Christian gentleman and you want to talk to a Jew, you can talk to him. He speaks several languages. He's like, you know, he's, he's, a, proper, he's, a, he's a proper person. Manasseh ben Israel gets a reputation as a, as, as, as a well integrated scholar. Yes, he's a Jew, and the Jews have something about them that's a bit weird for us, but he's a good face of the community, and that's why he would have found himself at the room when Montezinas in 1644 would have been talking. Manasseh ben Israel would have been around about 40 years old that time. Now, the other thing is is that (laughs) Manasseh ben Israel was friends with some very prominent non-Jewish creative types don't call out do not call out who is the most famous of the creative types that he was friends with Rembrandt now Rembrandt was living not far from the Jewish area Rembrandt liked Jews because they made fascinating studies for his paintings and Rembrandt was deeply interested in the Bible. So when he'd to illustrate the Bible, he'd run out, find a Jew on the street and paint him, <laughs> effectively. We have at least two portraits of Manasseh ben Israel made by Rembrandt because they were not only associates, they were on quite friendly terms, they lived near each other. I'm not saying that Rembrandt went round to his house to be a Shabbos goy, you know, and turn the lights off on a Friday night, but they knew each other very well. Rembrandt, by the way, was probably the most uh, philo-Semitic of any artist, non-Jewish artist, in the last few hundred years. He he really felt strongly about uh, Jewish people, and he loved living near Jewish people, and he painted many, many of them. There's even a rumor historically that he was Jewish that Rembrandt was Jewish. This is not a rumour that is given much credence by historians. We fairly know Rembrandt's lineage. I think his mother was Catholic, his father was Protestant, but he was so involved in the Jewish community that that rumour came about. However, whilst on the subject of Rembrandt, and it's relevant because we're talking about Manasseh Ben Israel living around the corner and we're in the golden age of Dutch, of, Dutch, of Holland. Uh, He's a remarkable painter. And Ruff Cook, who's heard of Ruff Cook? Yeah. yeah. So Ruff Cook said of Rembrandt that he was a tzaddik. That's a very, very high level of praise, that he was a righteous person. And the reason Ruff Cook said that is because so, only someone who was in deep communion with the divine would be capable of using light in that way. Remember that Rembrandt's entire revolution, really, in terms of Dutch painting, was the way that he was able to portray light within the context of the materials that he had at hand. Fascinating. But we're not talking about Rembrandt, which we're going into Rembrandt. Fascinating. But he knew Manasseh Ben-Israel and painted him. Now, Manasseh Ben-Israel sits in the room and he listens to Montezina's. because the other thing about Manasseh bin Israel, right? and when you get home, Google Manasseh bin Israel, just anywhere, and you'll see a picture with a very, very famous portrait of him done by Rembrandt, it's like, boom, Manasseh bin Israel. The thing about him was, as was so common to many people, and those of you who've sat here since talk number one of the 17th century will know that what was one of the things that was on people's minds in the 1640s, if you're Jewish, Messiah. the Messiah. We're not yet at Shabtai Tzvi Stan, but we are thinking about the Messiah. Remember the famous book that was published uh, in Amsterdam in 1648 by Naftali Bachrach, the Valley of the King that fused the mind of Nathan of Gaza. Everybody was thinking about the Messiah because 1648 was when to be one of those years. And there was a general messianic Feeling in the world, but also, uh, but also because the events that had happened in the 16th century, and so on, had been uh, seemingly so awful that they felt that there was. Nothing left to come but the Messiah. But certainly there was, and because the world had been in turmoil, transforming, changing, discovering whole new things about the world, there was definitely an era of change. Remember that it's not just the 16th century of the transformation. We've now got the 17th century, the Enlightenment's happening and so on. So Manasseh ben Israel is sitting in the room, and when he hears this, he just goes into overload. This is the fuse that lit him. And he believes Montesinos. Now it so happens that Manasseh in Israel, being this theological dude about town, was also in correspondence with some important Christian theologians, Protestant theologians. One of the uh, Peter Serarius, who is an interesting figure, we're not going into right now. Um, Henry Jesse in England, Henry Jesse. <sighs> Henry Jesse I'll come back to him later fascinating these 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 thinkers and uh, and leaders of protestant uh, thought were were also deeply impressed by the reports of Montesinos because there is this thing called thinking, millenarian thinking it's the belief that the messiah is coming at any moment yeah so that took hold in the Christian world. Remember that's also a background to what was going on later with Shabtai Tzvi and so on. So these millenarian thinkers, Christian millenarian thinkers were starting to correspond with him and one of them in particular a man called John Dury, this is not a lecture on Christian millenarians, but John Dury, another fascinating figure and deeply in correspondence with the Manasseh in Israel, writes to him and says You were there when Montezinus gave his testimony. Tell us what you think. And Manasseh ben Israel wrote him back and said, I believe it. But he didn't just do that. Manasseh ben Israel sat down in response to Dury's questions, which were coming on behalf of Messianic Christians in England, and wrote an entire book. and very quickly and very quickly and this book was called Mikvei Israel or as we understand it in English and it was translated into English very quickly the hope of Israel And in the hope of Israel, one of the most famous books written in the last few hundred years in Jewish history, and certainly in the context of the 17th century, one of the most impactful. In the hope of Israel, Manasseh ben Israel argues that it is now time for the Jews to be given and granted status right across all of the countries of the world including many of the countries that they had formerly been banished from. And that would mean, what country in particular might he be thinking about? England. England. The letters were coming from England. But this was the beginning of an idea. He points out, and it's very interesting, he makes several arguments in this that are very, very difficult to argue against, especially if you're a millenarian Christian in the 17th century. First of all, one argument is redemptive. And listen very, very carefully, because what I'm about to say will confuse some, but I'm going to make an observation that I've made previously when I've spoken very briefly about Manasseh and Israel. I've never had the opportunity to go into a kind of this depth we're doing now, but it's very, very interesting. If we go back 100 if we go back a century or more than a century to Molcho and Ruveni what were Molcho and Ruveni saying what did they want to do do you remember what did they want to do they wanted to bring all the Jews together into the Holy Land. That's why Malchus called the, you know, Ruveni Malchus called the proto proto spark of the granddaddy of the spark of Zionism, right? They wanted to bring Jews into the Holy Land, they wanted, to, they wanted to have a crusade, in fact. Manasseh ben Israel's idea is effectively the opposite. Manasseh ben Israel is saying that it's very clear from the prophecies in the Bible that the Jews need to be spread out to all four corners of the globe and so long as they are being limited in where they can go the Messiah cannot yet come so there's a redemptive argument in allowing the Jews into countries especially now that we're starting to see political agitation in the world and that Jews have a very good understanding of this new idea called democracy. democracy. And the third argument was basically economic. It's never been bettered this argument and it's never been proven false. Manasseh ben Israel says when you think about Jews you really think about some the people. They're smelly, they're broken, they're pathetic. But really that's not the case. Yes, we undergo difficult circumstances at different times because every once in a while some maniac will stand up and try and oppress us and kick us out. But whenever that happens, someone else takes us in and lets us have equal conditions. And he cites various examples. And when that happens, what happens to the society and the economy of the country that takes Jews in? What happens to them? And if you don't believe me, have a look at Holland. Superpowers. They become a superpower. And that argument has never been falsified until the 21st century now very impressive book Hope of Israel but some things have got to happen before it really starts to take effect and it doesn't really kick off until about 10 years after Montezinus. because I don't know if you heard about it don't know if you heard about it but England had a revolution and uh, after the Battle of Worcester and other things, it didn't go so well for the king, Charles I, and he ended up losing his head. And England was ruled by a Lord Protector called Oliver Cromwell, a Republican. And it was the Commonwealth of England, and he was the Lord Protector, and it was effectively ruled by Parliament. Now. One thing, that's very well known. I can look around the room and I can see people going, oh yes, finally you've said something I know. (laughs) What's not so easily known, and remember, just to remind us, just to remind us so that there's no one sitting in this room here being confused, that when Manasseh bin Israel was making that argument, (coughs) it still was illegal to be a Jew in England the Jews were expelled by Edward I in 1290 so it's illegal as it turns out there were a few Jews sprinkled around but for the most part it was illegal and that was the whole point Cromwell didn't have a problem with Jews but he was an Englishman he'd probably never even met a Jew he knew what they were but he didn't have any specific problem. He certainly didn't have any theological problem, but what Cromwell's main concern with, as with Cromwell's main concern in just about everything, was maintaining civil order. He didn't want to do anything that was going to upset the society. We've just killed a king. Things might just be a bit fragile. Now, what's also not known necessarily, and realized by a lot of people who understand this aspect of history, because they don't always put these facts together, And they go, oh, yes, well, you know, Holland was Protestant and England was Protestant, so that was now we can understand why Manasseh bin Israel was agitating to get the Jews into England. And they forget that between 1652 and 1655, England and Holland were at war, they were at war. Now that was the first of a series of wars that's going to go between England and Holland, the Anglo-Dutch wars, that's going to go on into the 18th century. But there was a window from 1655 onwards where diplomatic relations were restored. And it was not Charles I who'd gone to war with Holland, it was Cromwell. Trade, Yeah, control of the seas. Control of the seas for sure. It was during that period where New Amsterdam became New York and so on. So it was all about controlling the trading ports, about controlling the seas and it was a very ugly war. Just because, in other words, it put a lie to the idea that just because two countries are now of the same religion and are both trying to be capitalist that that wouldn't happen. It happened. Yep. Okay. Manasseh bin Israel eventually gets his opportunity because he goes to London in 1655 having written a letter to Cromwell personally a long letter that became published to the Lord Protector asking for admission of the Jews and he came to London and he met with a whole lot of people some important figures not entirely sure that he personally met with Cromwell whether he actually had high tea with him in Hyde Park we don't know that but he certainly more than likely at least was introduced to Cromwell but he met extensively with a lot of people government officials and particularly influential jurists and theologians in London at the time who were all discussing this issue eventually Oh, and he went to London with another rabbi who we will not go into in detail but who is a fascinating person in their own right I've actually attended an entire conference just on this person called Rabbi Jacob Sasportas Rabbi Jacob Sasportas also had come from, from Holland uh, he was actually originally born Uh, in uh, in North Africa but he would go in Holland he was he is going to go on eventually to become the head of the Ketet Torah Academy in Amsterdam and one of the fiercest fiercest anti-Sabbateans of the late 17th century fascinating figure but we don't have time to go into him now but he went to London with Manasseh bin Israel and and eventually Cromwell says you know what we're going to have a conference We're going to have a big conference, and we're going to talk about it. And that conference, of course, became called the... Anyone know what that's called? The Whitehall Conference of December 1655. Very important conference in the context of Jewish history. The Whitehall Conference. Where do you think it was held? There you go. So, easy to remember. So, at this conference, which lasted about two weeks... A conference of all the top politicians and jurists in England singularly on the subject of do we readmit the Jews? And arguments for and arguments back and of course Manasseh and Israel's friends were all arguing for. And guys like John Dury and Henry Jesse who knew Cromwell were putting a lot of pressure on Cromwell to say let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And Cromwell didn't want to do it not that he didn't want Jews he didn't want to say it officially saying it officially would send waves of discontent throughout a society that he was seriously trying very hard to control and keep stable one little spark could ignite a range of things so he communicated to those close to him that he person didn't have a problem with Jews coming in and he would give it the nod but he didn't want to talk about it officially and so what the Whitehall conference did was it came up with a fascinating conclusion and the conclusion was arrived at by eminent jurists at the end of the day it boiled down to a legal decision and not a political one it was a legal argument that won the Whitehall conference and the legal argument was in essence there is no law against it. And the reason there is no law against it is because that law was affected by royal decree. And we don't have a king. And parliament, who is now the sole sovereign authority in this land, has effected no such law. So we're not going to start saying Officially, let's make a law to give Jews the right to it come. We're just going to say there's no law against it. And it is from that moment, the end of the Whitehall Conference in December 1655, and quite a number of people at the time write this that is the moment that Jews were readmitted into England. And they started to come. And they first of all came from Amsterdam and they were predominantly Portuguese Jews. Yep. Or Jews of Portuguese background. A couple of whom had already been living there. Uh, Someone, for some reason, everybody's name seems to be Antonio. This is Antonio de Carvajal and Antonio uh, uh, Rodriguez de Robles. These were Jews that were known Jews. that were already living in London, even before Manasseh in Israel came but they did outward things to keep everybody calm, like they would attend a mass once a week and they would do this and that, but they were known as Jews. And it was their actions at one point when some of their uh, their property was seized by customs and they, were, they, were, they forcibly entered and took the property back and so on and it ended up in the courts and the courts had to basically make the decision that there was no reason the Jews' assets should be seized any more than anyone else's Jews. And these sorts of de facto legal bits and pieces contributed to the status quo that Jews can come and we're just not going to say anything about it. The great flood of Ashkenazic Jewry that came from Germany is really the story of the following century. That's really the early 18th century and the mid 18th century you know so that we know that by the time we get to the end of the 18th century you've got all those thousands of Jews living in the slums in East London and on the streets and they're the ones that eventually find their way as convicts to Australia that really is a whole other story but the first Jews that were arriving were properly showered Portuguese Jews and they were coming into London and within a few short decades they had managed to set up uh, the Bevis Mark Synagogue in London, and so on. So Manasseh in Israel is critical, critical to our understanding of the 17th century shift uh, and the Jews being readmitted into England from Holland, and that impacts all of us. And it impacts everything going forward in terms of anything to do with Western Europe and the New World because right. Jews were allowed in England. They were allowed in England's territories in the New World. Yeah. The restoration after Cromwell died. Well, of course, of course. Well, Cromwell dies in, I think, 1658. 1658. Yeah. In 1660, Charles II comes. They bring Charles II back and they restore the monarchy, correct. I'm glad you pointed that out. And uh, But it was a very different monarchy. It was a monarchy that had to basically behave itself and be guided by Parliament And if Parliament said Jews are here, and I've got to tell you that a lot of historians today believe that Cromwell was swayed by two things. He was swayed on the one hand by the redemptive argument. He was at the end of the day a good believing Christian boy who wanted to see the Messiah come back. He wanted to see the Jews convert. He knew that had to happen by way of the processes laid out in the Bible. So he thought the Jews need to be here. But even more so, he was persuaded by the economic argument. And he knew that allowing Jews back into England would start to see England's economy boom, and he wasn't wrong. Now, brace yourself, because such is the nature of Jewish history, and it's so fascinating and that while this is happening, that's happening, and this is happening, that's happening. That's why I always say to us, when we get to say, you know, just step back and look at the things that we've talked about and how it all, oh, really, oh, that's all happening at the same time. Because we can't talk about two things at once. We can only talk about things one at a time, but there's things happening. While Manasseh ben Israel is in London, because he's there for two years, While, but even shortly after he gets there, while he's having high tea with Cromwell, allegedly, one of his students, who's been studying at the Keter Torah Academy, a young man by the name of Baruch Spinoza, who was a student of Manasseh bin Israel, in a rabbinical court headed by Rabbi Samuel Halevi Mortera gets excommunicated for having said and written some very dangerous comments you always got to remember and, I, and, and we know this, we know this, and we need to remember this, that if Spinoza had anything, and he had many, 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 many amazing attributes, Spinoza, but at the age of 23, if he had anything, he had balls. This was the town that had effectively killed Da Costa just a few years before. Spinoza was attacked on the steps of the synagogue by a guy with a knife who didn't manage to injure him but ripped his coat with the knife. Spinoza wore that coat for years, not only kept it, but he wore it as a mark of pride. Now, Spinoza's parents had come to Amsterdam from a Portuguese background. And his father was a well-respected merchant in the town. And Baruch went to the Kete Torah Academy and grew up like a very, 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 very bright young man. There were a lot of hopes that he would become one of the great rabbis of Amsterdam, but at a young age had a series of crises of faith. He was also a little bit in and out of the court system because he was, there were was some family estate issues that he was dealing with. And got a reputation as someone, and this is why he was so dangerous, because he had a reputation as someone who was extremely honest and faultlessly ethical. That's dangerous. Sorry? I'm just to say dangerous. That is a very dangerous combination. <laughs> if, someone's, if someone's threatening your theological worldview, it's too easy if you can say, ah, there are whatever, or there are whatever. But if someone is of such a high level of personality that they are completely honest and ethical in every single thing they do, and they have a problem with you, then that's dangerous for your worldview. Spinoza, now, <laughs> it's important for us to understand that Spinoza is not simply a Jewish boy who became a philosopher and therefore he's of interest to Jewish history. Spinoza is an immense figure on the world stage of philosophy. He is regarded by most philosophers as the ultimate enlightenment thinker. And he single-handedly changed the whole consciousness of humanity in relation to religion and I need to spend a little bit of time on that. Look, let me tell you something. This is is going to be deleted from the record. A couple of weeks ago, I had someone come to me and tell me on behalf of a rabbi in this town that I was accused, I was accused, that I gave a lecture on history and that in that lecture on history, I had said something positive about Mendelssohn. Yes. And I'm looking and I'm going, this is the 21st century, we're in Melbourne, and I talk, of course I said something positive about Mendelssohn, it's one of the great minds of the 18th century. But I just need to be very careful. Because if I got in trouble for saying something positive about Mendelssohn, imagine what would happen if I talked too long about Spinoza. But Spinoza is the first thing we need to realize, because a lot of people make the mistake. People think that Baruch Spinoza got the chair, meaning the excommunication, for the Tractatus Theologico Politicus. But the Tractatus Theologico Politicus wasn't written until 16, it wasn't published until 1670. And that was published in Spinoza's lifetime. Spinoza only lived till he was 40, nearly 45. But the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus is an astonishing work. And I'm going to summarize it for you because it, it's an important part of Jewish history. Because there are two works he's famous for. One is the Tractatus, which was published in his lifetime. And I'm only discussing them for a few minutes each to show how they shed light on Jewish history. The Tractatus was published in his lifetime and only posthumously did they publish The Ethics, which is his great metaphysical masterpiece, where he basically took the geometry of Descartes or the the principles of Descartes and showed how they can be applied uh, to metaphysics, an understanding of the relationship between us and God. In the Tractatus... Spinoza basically says, basically says, you know, you know, because we've looked at thinkers before. We looked at Azari de Rossi in the 16th century, right? And Azari de Rossi goes, oh, I'm not sure there's one author going on here. And we looked at other thinkers who were starting to maybe chip away at the cracks of what we believe about the Bible. But it was Spinoza who said, none of it is from God. It's all written by people. It contains some interesting ideas and there's some wisdom in there. But you can see the inconsistencies in it. That's why I pointed out how fascinating it is that his teacher Manasseh in Israel wrote a book called The Conciliator and his student, Manasseh, uh, his student Spinoza blasts the whole thing open. But if you just read the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus as a book of biblical criticism and Spinoza is called the granddaddy of biblical criticism and biblical criticism has its place just because you read biblical criticism doesn't mean you need to run off now and have a bacon sandwich and play golf on Yom Kippur. It has its place. If you think it's just about political, uh, biblical criticism you're missing the point. The Theologico-Politicus is also about a political worldview, a political worldview about religion that governments and authorities of society have no right to tell people what they should and should not believe this was going to have a great effect on the M-word Mendelssohn that and then he launches into this massive political argument a massive political argument about the fact that governments governments exist in order to benefit people and raise and preserve and protect their freedom. Not the other way around. People do not exist in order to preserve government. This is a huge enlightenment shift that everybody afterwards is drawing from. And he brings out his political theory from his critique of the Bible. Now that critique is really, really understood when you read the ethics. As I'm talking about this, I'm feeling already in my mind that I'm not doing this adequate justice. I can only urge you, if you really want to understand Spinoza, is to read him, but that's effectively what the Tractatus is doing. It's using his critique of the Bible as a platform for a theory about political society. He's single-handedly bringing down the whole of the ancient and medieval notion of the Word of God. If there is a moment in which God is replaced by mathematics and by rationalism, which was the Enlightenment's project, it's there. But in the ethics, he goes into orbit. That's where he becomes Spinoza. <laughs> Everything is God it doesn't make sense to talk about God unless you're going to acknowledge that God is infinite and that everything is God this is why in its most distilled form there's a tremendous affinity between the purest thought of Spinoza and Kabbalistic and Hasidic thought Everything is the infinite. Everything is God. Because there's only one thing that can exist, and that's God. God's the only He shows you philosophically through a whole series of axioms, and he's right. If you understand what reality is and you are metaphysically, and you understand and you have a notion of God, then everything must be God. We all exist in the mind of God. And all that exists is God. However, before we start running off and putting a talus on Spinoza, we have to realize that that's kind of where he moves away from traditional Jewish thought. Because Spinoza then takes those ideas to their logical conclusion. And the first logical conclusion, based certainly on his work in the Tractatus and in his metaphysical reasoning in the Ethics, is to tell you, well, God has infinite modes, And God has an infinity of modes, But there's only two that are available to us in this, down here. One is body, that means extension, That that, that word extension means everything. That's space, time, physics, the whole thing. And thought. Now Descartes had tried to tell you that the mind and the body kind of in some way through divine intervention coexist simultaneously. But Spinoza is telling you that those two things, extension and thought, are simply two modes of the infinite God. But there's no such thing as revelation. There's no such thing as chosen people or special people or special things because everything is God. There's no such thing as God revealing some kind of plan or some kind of special morality. Everything is God. And there's no such thing as free choice. Everything is God. So everything you do, you're not doing through this thing called free. You're doing because you are part of God that's just being God. When you think you want to do something, you're no more free than a rock being thrown thinking it wants to go in that direction. We call that determinism. Everything is predetermined. There is no free choice. What, therefore, does Spinoza want from you? What Spinoza wants is for you to accept that if there is anything that we as human beings can do, and we are caught between our bodily impulses and this amazing, amazing concept of the rational instrument of the mind that can contemplate the workings of God. And God is revealed, if God is revealed at all, He's revealed through substance, through nature, through its reason and through its rationality. Don't forget that this is the time of Galileo and of Newton and of everybody else. I mean, when he left the Jewish community, and had, where does he go? He doesn't become a Christian. He doesn't become a Christian. That's unheard of. If you walk out of the shul, and flick your forks and go down and live in another neighbourhood and you're in the 17th century you have to be... how are you going to survive? You've got to become something he is... The, not only is he the first secular Jew he's generally identified as the first ever secular person in Western Europe and he take, gets a job as a lens grinder. He got interested in optics Anyone know one of the people that Spinoza worked with? He worked with Huygens. Christian Huygens. Am I saying it wrong? I've always said Huygens. He saw the rings on Saturn, he saw the planets of Saturn, first, per- the moons of Saturn. They named, they named the thing, the Cassini Huygens thing, went to Saturn from NASA, just a few days. You must have read it. You're studying too much Jewish history. You have to look at a bit of astronomy occasionally. Now. Anyway, he collaborates with Hogan, so he gets interested in lenses and optics, he's a secular person, but he has this incredible, incredible metaphysical vision of what humanity is capable of if it strips itself of the superstitions of religion and focuses on contemplating on the reason and rationality of God as evidenced in God's own self, which is nature, which is substance. Now it is some a lot of people say that's close to pantheism, basically saying that nature is God it's a, it's a, the jury is out on that now, before I leave Spinoza, I've got to tell you, because he goes he, he was rejected, and in fact, calling someone a Spinozist for the next 200 years was akin to calling someone an atheist and he's never really been recovered by the Jewish community, even though he You know because the Jewish people are going, I don't care what you say Baruch, I don't care what you say, people are chasing after us, people don't like us and uh, that's one aspect of being Jewish and we have got by because um, we have a Torah, we believe that God revealed something to the world to make the world better and that the Jewish people are instrumental to that project. Uh, But Spinoza was having none of it. Didn't believe in free will, didn't believe in revelation, didn't believe in religion, and said, that's where I'm at, and the rest of humanity can spend the next few hundred years catching up. In 2012, once again, the chief rabbi of Amsterdam was revisited with this question. They asked him, can we lift the ban on Spinoza? Nope. Nope, they will not lift the ban on Spinoza. He's an Apicurus de writer. can't do it. Uh, 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 Spinoza's a big one. Spinoza's the most famous excommunication of the last 500 years because he didn't just go and slink off and become, you know, he, he became Spinoza and, 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 and is the turning point in the whole of Enlightenment consciousness. Ideas tend to come up mushroom up at the time when they're intellectually ripe for it. So I don't think it's a coincidence that great thinkers of the Hasidic movement, who are panentheists at least, are actually within a century of Spinoza. But it's not the same. There were great rabbis who read Spinoza, and those questions, Ramchal read Spinoza, and Mendelssohn read Spinoza. Now, um, one episode, there's an episode, I'm going to talk about two more episodes and then we're finishing, I'm going to talk about them very quickly, um, just so you know, just so that when you research the 17th century, you don't sit there going, well David Solomon didn't talk about that. Because they're very important, we just don't have time to go into them in huge detail, and that is that in 1679, 1680, there was a very, very Um, difficult set of circumstances that happened to to a Jewish community we haven't really spoken about that was very flourishing throughout the 16th and 17th centuries and even before that but certainly we know a lot about its histories in the 16th and 17th and that is the community of Yemen and the Yemenite Jews had a phenomenal community of tens of thousands of Jews who'd been there for centuries and centuries, perhaps even millennia, had their whole, whole own Jewish culture and so on, had also been subject to some of the great waves of messianic movements and so on. But uh, in 1679, by virtue of an overnight decree, all of the Jews of Yemen, this is called the exile of mauza the exile of mauza so those of you who are interested in Yemenite Jewry really need to know about that. It's a very big episode of the 17th century. And once it, we don't have time to go into the detail, but basically, and it is a lot of detail, and that is that all of the Jewish communities of Yemen were uh, force-marched overnight out of their communities and exiled from all of their communities to a random spot on the west coast on the Red Sea of Yemen, uh, where first of all they were all going to be slaughtered and then it was actually a lot, quite a number of, of, of Arab chieftains who went uh, to the Yemenite rulers and pleaded with them not to kill them so they just left them there in exile. Uh, thousands died on these forced marches in brutal heat and brutal conditions because it was the height of the summer and f- they were kept out of their communities for a of the cities for a year. In these brutal conditions, until the local populations right across Yemen suddenly realized that, oh, you know, the Jews used to do this and they used to make this and we don't have anyone doing this, and we don't have anyone doing that. And so the authorities allowed them back in, but only under degraded circumstances. Travelers right throughout the following century were still talking about the aftermath of this horrendous, random event that happened to the Jews of Yemen. It was, at some level, an avoided holocaust, but at another level, it had uh, horrendous impact as well. To a community, by the way, that had more or less seen untroubled times for a long time, and it integrated itself well and was highly respected within the wider Yemenite society. Uh, Ahmad al-Mahdi was the, the ruler. It was a... It was kind of like a a random religious zeal. He suddenly felt that, why are these Jews around? They're not Muslims. So he gave them the choice to convert or be killed. And they didn't want to convert. Remember, Yemenite Jewry had already been forcibly converted en masse hundreds of years before, during the time of Maimonides. And Maimonides actually said to them, do it. Don't let yourselves be killed. Just do it. And we'll deal with it later. Because at the end of the day, the end of the day, Islam is monotheism, it's not ideal. An argument, by the way, also applied to Shabbatai Tzvi. Some people say that Shabbatai Tzvi didn't do anything wrong by converting to Islam, but no one asked Shabbatai Tzvi to stand up and be the Messiah as well. Now, the one last thing I'm going to talk about, just very briefly, a quick episode that some of you are sitting there going, well, I can't believe he didn't speak about this. And it's right at the end of the 17th century, right at the end. Now, some of you, I know, might have heard, you might have friends, you might have family, it might even be yourselves. But everybody has at least heard one horror Aliyah story. Not horror as in ooh, you know, but Aliyah doesn't always go so well for people. Yeah, moving to, emigrating to Israel doesn't always work out so well for people. Yeah? I know, we lived in Israel, we had a lifestyle collapse. We know what it's several. We know what it's like. The biggest disastrous Aliyah story of the last few hundred years happens right at the end of the 17th century. Because a man called He's called Yehuda Hachasid, Judah the pious. Yeah. And he is running around Europe in the 1690s. And he's a Sabbatean. But no one really knows that yet. Although he does, and his Sabbatean mates do. And he's got a few followers and he's got this reputation as a holy man. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to whip up followers to go with him on a mass Aliyah, a mass immigration to Israel. And eventually, by the end of the 1690s towards the end of 1690s, he has fifteen hundred people, hundreds of families. And they all go en masse, but completely and absolutely underfunded, under-resourced, and under-equipped. And about a third, you know what I'm talking about, right? About a third of them die on the way. But eventually, about a thousand of them, and also as they're moving through the Ottoman Empire, they're making promises they can't fulfill. One of the promises they made of was that they promised the Ottoman authorities that the city of Jerusalem would pay their debts. (laughs) The city of Jerusalem, by the way, which by this time was under unbelievable economic pressure, unbelievable economic pressure, not only because of, as we've spoken about before, things were tough in the Ottoman Empire, in the Levant generally, as the West was on the rise, And anyway, Jerusalem had found itself outside the great economic corridor of Damascus, Cairo, within that framework. But also the Khmelnytsky massacres had wiped out a lot of the sources of their donations from Eastern Europe that were keeping them going. A point, by the way, that was made by Benassim and Israel to Cromwell about supporting Jews in the Holy Land. So these thousand people, led by Yehuda Hasid, suddenly descend on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's entire population at the time of Jews was about 1,200. 1,000 of whom were Sephardim, and 200 were Ashkenazi. And suddenly these thousand Ashkenazic Jews with nothing, no money, no resources, and we're here, can you look after us? completely crushed the community of Jerusalem. They had no way, no way, of being able to cope with this. Having led this entire Aliyah, having led this entire Aliyah, when they arrive in Jerusalem, about three or four days, uh, less than a week after they arrive, Yudah Hasid dies. But being being Ashkenazic Jews, you know, bit of this, bit of that, and eventually they build a shul. That shul, a few months later, gets destroyed by the Arab builders who built it because they can't pay them. So they come and they knock the building over. The Ottoman authorities are so incensed that they banish all Ashkenazic Jews from Jerusalem. Doesn't matter whether you're here. After, before that event, da-da-da-da, no more Ashkenazic Jews. There's a lot of Ashkenazic Jews, quite a number of them pretended to be Sephardim and actually started wearing Sephardic dress and their descendants even wear Sephardic dress to today, even though they're Ashkenazim and some of them went to live in other holy cities like Hebron and Tzfat and so on. That synagogue, which is known as the Churva Synagogue oh, now I'm seeing some people go, oh, the Churva Synagogue got rebuilt in the, eight, in, the, in the 19th century and became the chief Ashkenazic synagogue in Jerusalem it's the one in the old in the Jewish quarter with the dome over it it's very famous you've all seen it or seen pictures of it at least that then got destroyed by the Jordanians in 1948 as they as you do and then it got rebuilt and it just got rededicated and when I say just in 2010 I was actually there at the rededication and opening of the Horva synagogue so beautiful building you should go in there and have a look but and its beautiful dome that overlooks the Jewish quarter, you've seen it. If you've gone to the Kotel, you've seen it. That's probably the most disastrous Aliyah in, uh, of the last few hundred years. And I wanted to end on that point, not because I, I, uh, I, I wanted to end on that point, but because uh, it's time to end. Um, thank you to all of you. For having followed through the 17th century and for having given me an opportunity to do that because I've now been able to lay the groundwork of how I might do this better next time. But certainly we've made to look at some of the major currents. Remember that by the end of the 17th century, by 1696, Newton produces the Principia Mathematica. We're now in a new world, we're in a world where we're going to understand the universe through mathematics. We're going to understand it through science. We're going to understand it through reason. And this is then going to take us into the 18th century. Those of you who heard me give my course on the 18th century, where do I start? I start in London with David Nieto as the rabbi of the Bevis Mark Synagogue in London in 1705, who is accused of being a Spinozist. That's where we start the 18th century. So Now it's beautiful we're able to take that up. So you can start to see the major currents of the 17th century. But like I always say, we've just jet skied on the surface. We've talked about the most important doorways, but I urge you to look into them for yourselves. So thank you for listening to all of that. Um, As usual, the notes are here. I I believe, oh, this looks like... Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that the other book that he wrote, Manasseh bin Israel, wrote a famous book on reincarnation called Nishmat Chayim So he was actually, I mean, he had all sorts of ideas about that as well, which we could talk about. But I think basically, uh, we've got, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, just one second. Sorry, Rabbi, just one second, because I'll it'll be annoyed. There was a, there, I talk, I did, there's one Kabbalist I didn't talk about. Called Moshe Zakut, probably one of the most famous Kabbalists of the 17th century, who was a classmate of Spinoza's. And and, and why I like to highlight that, we're not going to go into Moshe Zakut, not only do I not have time, but he's a very, very recondite figure. You'd have to know about Kabbalistic literature to understand that. But one of the fascinating things about Moshe Zakut, who was in Torah with Spinoza, is that unlike Spinoza, who went to learn Latin, learn Latin from a guy called Franciscus Van Enden, a very, very famous radical Latin thinker or a person who teacher, Latin teacher, who ended up being killed in France uh, later on as a a political radical. Moshe Zakut sat and fasted, fasted for months in order to be able to forget Latin. And so these two boys both emerged from the famous Ketter Torah school in Amsterdam. So have a look into that. It's fascinating. But thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.